Book 4, Chapter 2, Part 2 of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A chance turn of the discussion has led us to a difficult type of statement of facts. I will, therefore, proceed to speak of those in which the facts are against us. Under such circumstances, some have held that we should omit the statement of facts altogether. Nothing can be more easy except perhaps to throw up the case altogether. But suppose you undertake a case of this kind with some good reason. It is surely the worst art to admit the badness of the case by keeping silence. We can hardly hope that the judge will be so dense as to give a decision in favor of a case which he knows we were unwilling to place before him. I do not, of course, deny that just as there may be some points which you should deny in your statement of facts, others which you should add, and yet again, others that you should alter, so there may be some which you should pass over in silence. But still, only those points should be passed over which we ought and are at liberty to treat in this way. This is sometimes done for the sake of brevity, as in the phrase, he replied as he thought fit. We must therefore distinguish between case and case. In those where there is no question of guilt but only of law, we may, even though the facts be against us, admit the truth. He took money from the temple, but it was private property, and therefore he is not guilty of sacrilege. He abducted a maiden, but the father can have no option as to his fate. He assaulted a freeborn boy, and the latter hanged himself but that is no reason for the author of the assault to be awarded capital punishment as having caused his death. He will instead pay 10,000 sesterces, the fine imposed by law for such a crime. But even in making these admissions, we may, to some extent, lessen the odium caused by the statement of our opponent. For even our slaves extenuate their own faults. In some cases, too, we may mitigate a bad impression by words which avoid the appearance of a statement of facts. We must say, for instance, he did not, as our opponent asserts, enter the temple with the deliberate intention of theft, nor seek a favorable occasion for the purpose, but was led astray by the opportunity, the absence of custodians, and the sight of the money. And money has always an undue influence on the mind of a man, and so yielded to temptation. What does that matter? He committed the offense and is a thief. It is useless to defend an act to the punishment of which we can raise no objection. Again, we may sometimes go near condemning our client ourselves. Do you wish me to say that you were under the influence of wine? That you made a mistake? That the darkness deceived you? That may be true. But still, you committed an assault on a freeborn boy. Pay your ten thousand sesterces. Sometimes we may fortify our case in advance by a preliminary summary, from which we proceed to the full statement of facts. All the evidence points to the guilt of three sons who had conspired against their father. After drawing lots, they entered their father's bedroom, while he slept, one following the other in the order predetermined, and each armed with a sword. None of them had the heart to kill him. He woke, and they confessed all. If, however, the father, who has divided his estate among them, and is defending them when accused of parricide, pleads as follows. As regards my defense against the law, it suffices to point out that these young men are charged with parricide in spite of the fact that their father still lives and is actually appearing on behalf of his children. 
What need is there for me to set forth the facts as they occurred, since the law does not apply to them? But if you desire me to confess my own guilt in the matter, I was a hard father to them, and watched over my estate, which would have been better managed by them with miserly tenacity. And if you then should add, they were spurred to attempt the crime by others who had more indulgent fathers, but their real feelings toward their father have been proved by the result, they could not bring themselves to kill him. It would have been quite unnecessary for them to take an oath to kill him if they had really had the heart to do the deed, while the only explanation of their drawing lots is that each of them wished to avoid the commission of the crime. If such were his pleading, all these pleas would, such as they are, find the judges all the most disposed to mercy, since the brief defense offered in the first summary statement would have paved the way for them. But if the question is whether an act has been committed or what its nature may be, even though everything be against us, how can we avoid a statement of facts without gross neglect of our case? The accuser has made a statement of facts, and has done so not merely in such a way as to indicate what was done, but has added such comments as might excite strong prejudice against us, and made the facts seem worse than they are by the language which he has used. On the top of this have come the proofs, while the peroration has kindled the indignation of the judge and left them full of anger against us. The judge naturally waits to hear what we can state in our behalf. If we make no statement, he cannot help believing that our opponent's assertions are correct and that their tone represents the truth. What are we to do then? Are we to restate the same facts? Yes, if the question turns on the nature of the acts, as it will if there is no doubt about the commission but we must restate them in a different way, alleging other motives and another purpose, and putting a different complexion on the case. Some imputations we may mitigate by the use of other words. Luxury will be softened down into generosity, avarice into economy, carelessness into simplicity, and I shall seek to win a certain amount of favor or pity by look, voice, and attitude. Sometimes a frank confession is of itself sufficient to move the jury to tears. And I should like to ask those who differ from me whether they are prepared to defend what they have refused to state or no. For if they refuse either to defend or to state the facts, they will be giving away their whole case. If, on the other hand, they do propose to put in a defense, they must at least, as a rule, set forth what they intend to justify. Why then not state fully facts which can be got rid of and must, in fact, be pointed out to make that possible? Or, again, what difference is there between a proof and a statement of facts, save that the latter is a proof put forward in continuous form, while a proof is a verification of the facts as put forward in the statement? Let us consider, therefore, whether under such circumstances the statement should not be somewhat longer and fuller than usual, since we shall require to make some preliminary remarks and to introduce certain special arguments. Note that I say arguments and not argumentation, while it will add greatly to the force of our defense if we assert, not once nor twice, that we shall prove what we say is true and that the significance of the facts cannot be brought out by one opening statement, bidding them wait, delay forming their opinions, and hope for the best. 
Finally, it is important to include in our statement anything that can be given a different complexion from that put upon it by our opponent. Otherwise, even an exordium will be superfluous in a case of this kind. For what is its purpose if not to make the judge better disposed for the investigation of the case? And yet it will be agreed that the exordium is never more useful than when it is necessary to divert the judge from some prejudice that he has formed against us. Conjectural cases, on the other hand, that is to say, questions of fact, require a statement which will more often deal with the circumstances from which a knowledge of the point at issue may be delivered than with the actual point which is under trial. When the accuser states these circumstances in such a manner as to throw suspicion on the case for the defense, and the accused has consequently to dispel that suspicion, the facts must be presented to the judge in quite a different light by the latter. But, it may be urged, some arguments are strong when put forward in bulk, but far less effective when employed separately. My answer is that this remark does not affect the question whether we ought to make a statement of fact, but concerns the question how it should be made. For what is there to prevent us from amassing and producing a number of arguments in the statement, if that is likely to help our cause? Or from subdividing our statement of facts, and appending the proofs to their respective sections, and so passing on to what remains to be said. Neither do I agree with those who assert that the order of our statement of facts should always follow the actual order of events, but have a preference for adopting the order which I consider most suitable. For this purpose, we can employ a variety of figures. Sometimes, when we bring up a point in a place better suited to our purpose, we may pretend that it had escaped our notice. Occasionally, too, we may inform the judge that we shall adhere to the natural order for the remainder of our statement, since by so doing we shall make our case clearer, while at times, after stating a fact, we may append the causes which preceded it. For there is no single law or fixed rule governing the method of defense. We must consider what is most advantageous in the circumstances and nature of the case, and treat the wound as its nature dictates, dressing at once, or, if the dressing can be delayed, applying a temporary bandage. Again, I do not regard it as a crime to repeat a statement of fact more than once, as Cicero does in the Procluentio. It is not merely permissible, but sometimes necessary, as in trials for extortion and all complicated cases, and only a lunatic will allow a superstitious observance of rules to lead him counter to the interests of his case. The reason for placing the statement of facts before the proof is to prevent the judge from being ignorant of the question at issue. Why then, if each individual point has to be proved or refuted, should not each individual point be stated as well? If my own experience may be trusted, I know that I have followed this practice in the courts whenever occasion demanded it, and my procedure has been approved both by learned authorities and the judges themselves, while the duty of setting forth the case was generally entrusted to me. I am not boasting, for there are many with whom I have been associated as counsel who can bring me to book if I lie. On the other hand, this is no reason for not following the order of events as a general rule. Indeed, 
inversion of the order has at times a most unhappy effect, as, for example, if you should mention first that a woman has brought forth, and then that she has conceived, or that a will has been read, and then that it has been signed. In such cases, if you should happen to have mentioned the later incident, it is better to say nothing about the former, which must quite obviously come first. Sometimes, too, we get false statements of facts. These, as far as actual pleading in the courts is concerned, fall into two classes. In the first case, the statement depends on external support. Publius Claudius, for instance, relied on his witnesses when he stated that he was at Interemna on the night when he committed abominable sacrilege at Rome. The other has to be supported by the speaker's native talent, and sometimes consists simply in an assumption of modesty, which is, I imagine, the reason why it is called a gloss, while at other times it will be concerned with the question at issue. Whichever of these two forms we employ, we must take here. First, that our fiction is within the bounds of possibility. Second, that it is consistent with the persons, dates, and places involved. And thirdly, that it presents a character and sequence that are not beyond belief. If possible, it should be connected with something that is admittedly true, and should be supported by some argument that forms part of the actual case. For, if we draw our fictions entirely from circumstances lying outside the case, the liberty which we have taken in resorting to falsehood will stand revealed. Above all, we must see that we do not contradict ourselves, a slip which is far from rare on the part of spinners of fiction. For some things may put a most favorable complexion on portions of our case, and yet fail to agree as a whole. Further, what we say must not be at variance with the admitted truth. Even in the schools, if we desire a gloss, we must not look for it outside the facts laid down by our theme. In either case, the orator should bear clearly in mind throughout his whole speech what the fiction is to which he has committed himself. Since we are apt to forget our falsehoods, and there is no doubt about the truth of the proverb that a liar should have a good memory. But, whereas, if the question turns on some act of our own, we must make one statement and stick to it, if it turns on an act committed by others, we may cast suspicion on a number of different points. In certain controversial themes of the schools, however, in which it is assumed that we have put a question and received no reply, we are at liberty to enumerate all the possible answers that might have been given. But we must remember only to invent such things as cannot be checked by evidence. I refer to occasions when we make our own minds speak, and we are the only persons who are in their secret, or put words in the mouth of the dead, for what they say is not liable to contradiction, or again in the mouth of someone whose interests are identical with ours, for he will not contradict, or finally in the mouth of our opponent, for he will not be believed if he does deny. Glosses drawn from dreams and superstitions have long since lost their value, owing to the very ease with which they can be invented. But it will avail as little to use glosses in a statement of facts unless they are consistent throughout the whole of our speech, more especially as certain things can only be proved by persistent assertion. Take, for instance, the case of the parasite who claims as his son a young man who has been thrice disinherited by a wealthy farmer and thrice restored to his own. 
he will be able to put forward as a gloss or plea that poverty was the reason why he exposed the child, that he assumed the role of a parasite because his son was in the house in question, and lastly, that the reason why the young man was thrice disinherited was simply that he was not the son of the man who disinherited him. But unless every word that he utters reveals an ardent paternal affection, hatred for his wealthy opponent, and anxiety on behalf of the youth, who will, he knows, be exposed to serious danger if he remains in the house where he is the victim of such dislike, he will be unable to avoid creating the suspicion that he has been suborned to bring the action. It sometimes happens in the controversial themes of the schools, though I doubt whether it could ever occur in the courts, that both sides employ the same gloss and support it on their own behalf. An example of this may be found in the theme which runs as follows. A wife has stated to her husband that her stepson has attempted to seduce her and that a time and place have been assigned for their meeting. The son has brought the same charge against his stepmother, with the exception that a different time and place are mentioned. The father finds the son in the place mentioned by the wife, and the wife in the place mentioned by the son. He divorces her, and then, as she says nothing in her own defense, disinherits the son. No defense can be put forward for the son, which is not also a defense of the stepmother. However, what is common to both sides of the case will be stated, and then arguments will be drawn from a comparison of the characters of the two parties, from the order in which they laid information against each other and from the silence of the divorced wife. Still, we must not ignore the fact that there are some cases which do not admit of any form of gloss, but must be defended forthright. An example is provided by the case of the rich man who scourged the statue of a poor man who was his enemy, and was subsequently indicted for assault. Here, no one can deny that the act was outrageous, but it may be possible to maintain that it is not punishable by law. If, however, part of the statement of facts tells in our favor and part against us, we must consider whether, in view of the circumstances of the case, the parts in question should be blent or kept apart. If the points which are damaging to our case be in the majority, the points which are in its favor will be swamped. Under those circumstances, it will be best to keep them apart, and, after setting forth and proving the points which help our case, to meet the rest by employing the remedies mentioned above. If, on the other hand, it be the points in our favor which predominate, we may even blend them with the others, since thus the traitors in our camp will have less force. Nonetheless, these points, both good and bad, must not be set forth naked and helpless. Those in our favor must be supported by some argument, and then reasons must be added why the points which are against us should not be believed, since if we do not distinguish clearly between the two, it is to be feared that those which are favorable may suffer from their bad company. Further rules are laid down with regard to the statement of fact, forbidding us to indulge in digression, apostrophe, or argumentation, or to put out words in the mouths of others. Some even add that we should make no appeal to the passions. These rules should for the most part be observed. Indeed, they should never be infringed unless the circumstances absolutely demand it. If our statement is to be clear and brief, almost anything can be justified sooner than digression. And if we do introduce a digression, it must always be short and of such a nature that we give the impression of having been forced from our proper course 
by some uncontrollable emotion. The passage in Cicero about the marriage of Sassia is a good example of this. What incredible wickedness in a woman, unheard of in the history of mankind, till she dared the sin! What unbridled and unrestrained lust! What amazing daring! One might have thought that, even if she had no regard for the vengeance of heaven and the opinion of men, she would at least have dreaded that night of all nights and those torches that lighted her to the bridal bed, that she would have shrunk in horror from the threshold of her chamber, from her daughter's room and the very walls that had witnessed her former marriage. As to addressing another in place of the judge, it may be a means of making a point with greater brevity and give it greater force. On this subject, I hold the same view that I expressed in dealing with the exordium, as I do on the subject of impersonation. The artifice, however, is employed not only by Servius Sulpicius in his speech on behalf of Ophidia, when he cries, Am I to suppose that you were drowsed with sleep or weighed down by some heavy lethargy? But by Cicero as well, when in a passage which, like the above, belongs to the statement of facts, in speaking of the ship's captains, he says, You will give so much to enter, etc. Again, in the Procluentio, does not the conversation between Steyenes and Bulbus conduce to speed and enhance the credibility of the statements? In case it should be thought that Cicero did this without design, quite an incredible supposition in his case, I would point out that in the Partitiones he lays it down that the statement of facts should be characterized by passages which will charm and excite admiration or expectation, and marked by unexpected turns, conversations between persons, and appeals to every kind of emotion. We shall, as I have already said, never argue points in the statement of facts, but we may sometimes introduce arguments, as, for example, Cicero does in the Proligario, when he says that he ruled his province in such a way that it was to his interest that peace should continue. We shall sometimes also, if occasion demand, insert a brief defense of the facts in the statement and trace the reasons that led up to them, for we must state our facts like advocates, not witnesses. A statement in its simplest form will run as follows. Quintus Ligarius went out as legate to Gaius Considius. But how will Cicero put it? Quintus Ligarius, he says, set out for Africa as legate to Gaius Considius, at a time when there was no thought of war. And again elsewhere, he says, not only not to war, but to a country where there was no thought of war and when the sense would have been sufficiently clear, had he said no more than Quintus Ligarius would not suffer himself to be entangled in any transaction, he adds, for he had his eyes fixed on home, and wished to return to his own people. Thus he made what he stated credible, by giving a reason for it, and at the same time colored it with emotion. I am therefore all the most surprised at those who hold that there should be no appeal to the emotions in the statement of facts. If they were to say, such appeals should be brief and not on the scale on which they are employed in the peroration, I should agree with them, for it is important that the statement should be expeditious. But why, while I am instructing the judge, should I refuse to move him as well? Why should I not, if it is possible, obtain that effect at the very opening of the case which I am anxious to secure at its conclusion, more especially in view of the fact that I shall find the judge far more amenable to the cogency of my proof 
if I have previously filled his mind with anger or pity? Does not Cicero, in his description of the scourging of a Roman citizen, in a few brief words stir all the emotions, not merely by describing the victim's position, the place where the outrage was committed, and the nature of the punishment, but also by praising the courage with which he bore it? For he shows us a man of the highest character, who, when beaten with rods, uttered not a moan, nor an entreaty, but only cried that he was a Roman citizen, thereby bringing shame on his oppressor and showing his confidence in the law. Again, does he not throughout the whole of his statement excite the warmest indignation at the misfortunes of Philodemus, and move us even to tears when he speaks of his punishment, and describes, or rather shows us as in a picture, the father weeping for the death of his son, and the son for the death of his father? What can any peroration present that is more calculated to stir our pity? If you wait for the peroration to stir your hearer's emotions over circumstances which you have recorded unmoved in your statement of facts, your appeal will come too late. The judge is already familiar with them and hears their mention without turning a hair, since he was unstirred when they were first recounted to him. Once the habit of mind is formed, it is hard to change it. For my own part, for I will not conceal my opinion, though it rests rather on actual examples than on rules, I hold that the statement of facts, more than any portion of the speech, should be adorned with the utmost grace and charm. But much will depend on the nature of the subject which we have to set forth. In slighter cases, such as are the majority of private suits, the decoration must be restrained and fit close to the subject while the utmost care must be exercised in choice of words. The words which in our purple passages are swept along by the force of our eloquence and lost in the profusion of our language must, in cases such as these, be clear and, as Zeno says, steeped with meaning. The rhythm should be unobtrusive, but as attractive as possible, while the figures must neither be derived from poetry nor such as are contrary to current usage, though warranted by the authority of antiquity, for it is important that our language should be entirely normal, but should be designed to relieve tedium by their variety and should be frequently changed to relax the strain of attention. Thus, we shall avoid repeating the same terminations and escape monotony in a stereotype turn of phrase, for the statement of facts lacks all the other allurements of style, and, unless it is characterized by this kind of charm, will necessarily fall flat. Moreover, there is no portion of a speech at which the judge is more attentive, and consequently nothing that is well said is lost. And the judge is, for some reason or other, all the more ready to accept what charms his ear, and is lured, by pleasure, to belief. When, on the other hand, the subject is on a larger scale, we have a chance to excite horror by our narration of abominable wrongs, or pity by a tale of woe. But we must do so in such a way as not to exhaust our stock of emotions on the spot, but merely to indicate our harrowing story in outline, so that it may at once be clear what the completed picture is like to be. Again, I am far from disapproving of the introduction of some striking sentence designed to stimulate the judge's jaded palate. 
The best way of so doing is the interposition of a short sentence like the following. Milo's slaves did what everyone would have wished his own slaves to do under similar circumstances. At times, we may even be a little more daring and produce something like the following. The mother-in-law wedded her son-in-law. There were no witnesses, none to sanction the union, and the omens were dark and sinister. If this was done in days when every speech was designed for practical purposes rather than display, and the courts were far stricter than today, how much more should we do it now, when the passion for producing a thrill of pleasure has forced its way even into cases where a man's life or fortunes are in peril? I shall say later to what extent I think we should indulge popular taste in this respect. In the meantime, I shall admit that some such indulgence is necessary. A powerful effect may be created if, to the actual facts of the case, we add a plausible picture of what occurred, such as will make our audience feel as if they were actual eyewitnesses to the scene. Such is the description introduced by Marcus Celius in his speech against Antonius. For they found him lying prone in a drunken slumber, snoring with all the force of his lungs, and belching continually, while the most distinguished of his female companions sprawled over every couch, and the rest of the seraglio lay round in all directions. They, however, perceived the approach of the enemy, and half dead with terror, attempted to arouse Antonius, called him by name, heaved up his head, but all in vain, while one whispered endearing words into his ear, and another slapped him with some violence. At last he recognized the voice and touch of each, and tried to embrace her who happened to be nearest. Once wakened, he could not sleep, but was too drunk to keep awake, and so was bandied to and fro between sleeping and waking in the hands of his centurions and his paramours. Could you find anything more plausible in imagination, more vehement in censure, or most vivid in description? There is another point to which I must call attention, namely, the credit which accrues to the statement of facts from the authority of the speaker. Now, such authority should first and foremost be the reward of our manner of life, but may also be conferred by our style of eloquence. For, the more dignified and serious our style, the greater will be the weight that it will lend to our assertions. It is, therefore, specially important in this part of our speech to avoid anything suggestive of artful design for the judge is never more on his guard than at this stage. Nothing must seem fictitious, not betray anxiety. Everything must seem to spring from the case itself, rather than the art of the orator. But our modern orators cannot endure this, and imagine that their art is wasted unless it obtrudes itself, whereas, as a matter of fact, the moment it is detected, it ceases to be art. We are the slaves of applause, and think it the goal of all our effort. And so, we betray to the judges what we wish to display to the bystanders. There is also a kind of repetition of the statement, which the Greeks call epidiegesis. It belongs to declamation rather than forensic oratory, and was invented to enable the speaker, in view of the fact that the statement should be brief, to set forth his facts at greater length, and with more profusion of ornament, as a means of exciting indignation or pity. I think that this should be done but rarely, and that we should never go to the extent of repeating the statement in its entirety, 
for we can attain the same result by a repetition only of parts. Anyone, however, who desires to employ this form of repetition should touch but lightly on the facts when making his statement, and should content himself with merely indicating what was done, while promising to set forth how it was done more fully when the time comes for it. Some hold that the statement of facts should always begin by referring to some person, whom we must praise if he is on our side, and abuse if he is on the side of our opponents. It is true that this is very often done for the good reason that a lawsuit must take place between persons. Persons may, however, also be introduced with all their attendant circumstances if such a procedure is likely to prove useful. For instance, the father of my client, gentlemen, was Aulus Cluentius Habitus, a man whose character, reputation, and birth made him the leading man, not only in his native town of Lorinum, but in all the surrounding district. Or again, they may be introduced without such circumstances as in the passage beginning, for Quintus Ligarius, etc., Often, too, we may commence with a fact, as Cicero does in the Protulio. Marcus Tullius has a farm, which he inherited from his father in the territory of Thurium. Or Demosthenes in the speech in defense of Tesiphon. On the outbreak of the Phocian War, as regards the conclusion of the statement of facts, there is a controversy with those who would have the statement end where the issue to be determined begins. Here's an example. After these events, the praetor Publius Dolabella issued an interdict, in the usual form, dealing with rioting and employment of armed men, ordering, without any exception, that Ibushius should restore the property from which he had ejected Cecina. He stated that he had done so. A sum of money was deposited. It is for you to decide to whom this money is to go. This rule can always be observed by the prosecutor, but not always by the defendant. End of chapter 2